Peter Behrens' short stories and essays have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, Tin House, Saturday Night, and the, and the National Post, and have been anthologized in Best Canadian Stories and Best Canadian Essays. He's the author of a collection of short stories, Night Driving. Behrens was a fellow of the Fine Arts Work Centre in Princeton and held a prestigious Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. He was born in Montreal, lives on the coast of Maine with his wife and son, and is the author of the 2006 Governor General Literary Award-winning novel, The Law of Dreams. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's nice to be here. J.M. Kotsia, the South African mm-hmm. writer, sparse is a term that typically is used to describe his work, sparse and poetic. I classify your book as J.M. Coetzea meets Charles Dickens. <laughs> I'll accept that. That sounds great. I mean, those are two great writers. You'd agree with that, then? Yes. It certainly pleases me that someone would think that. Now, was this sparse, poetic approach mingled with a sort of a social, moral intent? Were they commingled in your mind when you were writing? What was there to start with? Other than your grandfather. I think it was based on your... The voice was there for that book. I think of a book as a voice. I mean, the essential thing of the book is a voice. A book is like a congealed lump of voice. Um, A book to me, I'm not interested in plots particularly. If I've got a voice, I think I've got a book. And for some reason, I had that voice always. And that book took a long time to write. And often I ran out of... I didn't know enough about the history. I lost my sense of the place. I had to go and renew myself, either by traveling to Ireland or by, by reading and learning about things I didn't know. Sometimes I would just be stumped with, what happens now? But through that kind of arduous process of finding the story, the voice was always available to me. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say, you know, I don't mean to sound mystical or blessed or anything as to where it came from. Right, but voice, I mean, is it like uh, Mozart sitting down and just being a conduit for... No, you know, first of all, though I'd love to claim kinship with Mozart, I I think that's a little bit of a stretch for a guy with one novel, but... uh, One (laughs) award-winning novel, it's where do you go from here, I guess. I was always very aware of my character as being a 16-year-old boy from a very limited background whose first language was not English, but Irish, who had a very narrow set of experiences with the world, who was hardly aware until he left it that he lived in a country called Ireland, that he did know some things that he knew very well and very deeply. He knew land, he knew smells of ground, he knew landscape, he knew animals. He had an ethical and moral sense and he was a fast learner. I knew those things about him. I didn't want in the book, you know, the book's conceit is that it's told essentially from, entirely from one point of view, other than the prologue, the first three or four pages, it's told entirely from the point of view of a 16-year-old Irish boy from East Clare who's, you know, from the back of the beyond and doesn't know a heck of a lot. So the language shaped itself to those circumstances. I tried never to see or understand anything that Fergus could not see or could not understand. And I tried to completely stay away from any kind of exposition in the book, so there's no explanatory language. I realized that was a bit of a handicap in some ways because I'm taking the readers into a very foreign world. I mean, Ireland, England, crossing the Atlantic, Canada in 1847, 
is the other side of the moon. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of the modern age, but it seems very strange to us. I hope that I could bring readers along without explaining stuff, just seeing it and experiencing it viscerally and centrally. Mm. I just kind of made a rule for myself that I wasn't going to start talking about it. You, you mentioned the other side of the moon and, uh, in terms of our culture and our society yep. being full of healthcare services and this place was as grim and close to say hell but there's a lot of death and famine to you start know with. if I may see my copy I went to the on my first on my drive into Montreal on Monday I had not ever been in probably 30 years to a place that was very important to me as a young man which is what a place in Montreal Irish called the Black Rock which is the uh, famine memorial that was uh, put up in 1859, 12 years after the, the worst famine summer of 1847 in Montreal. And it's always been tucked away in a forgotten part of the city that used to be Griffintown and is now just kind of a series of dead ends and expressways, a neglected part of southwest Montreal, but it's the old Irish Quarter. And I found the Black Rock, which is now in the middle of Bridge Street with traffic running on either side of it. It has an air, sadly, of a kind of neglect that partly seems appropriate and partly seems kind of disgraceful. I remember being taken to that place by my grandfather, who was a descendant of famine immigrants, as a young man, and it had a profound impact on me. I'd just like to read what I copied from the inscription on, on the Black Rock on Bridge Street in Montreal. To preserve from desecration the remains of 6,000 immigrants who died of ship fever, A.D. 1847-48. This stone is erected by the workmen of Messrs. Petto, Brassi, and Betts, employed in the construction of the Pretoria Bridge, AD 1859, so 12 years after the worst famine supper, by accident, while digging the approaches to the bridge, they, they unearthed the famine graves, and stopped digging, and wouldn't dig there. Most of the workmen were Irish, and left that stone, which is, which is still there, and if you grew up, as I did in Montreal, with a grandfather called John Joseph O'Brien, you know that sort of stuff. It sounds almost like that, that knowledge was akin to that voice that was there. Yeah, probably part of it. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought of Fergus as my great-great-grandfather, uh, whom, whom I know really knew nothing other than he was an O'Brien and came out of Clare and came through Montreal in the famine years. Young Fergus has an awful go of it to start with. First of all, his siblings are starving to death and they actually die in, in front of him. His parents get burned to death. His first uh, two sort of love interests die early. That's a pretty grim way to start one's life. It is. I mean, uh, the book has, I must say, it's dealing with darkness and death. It's about the family. But there's also, I mean, there's tremendous, I, I hope, there's light and passion and sensuality in there as well. He does meet people who take care of him. He falls in love with some kind of spectacular girls, I think. And he has a, a rich range of experience. But what you say is also true. And that was unavoidable simply because to read the literature of what actually happened in the famine. It's, it's actually not unfamiliar at all for those of us who watch TV and follow what's going on in places like Darfur or Sierra Leone mm -hmm. or other parts of West or Northern Africa. The famine is famine. And to this day, I mean, people are horrified by, by my tales of, say, the Irish famine. But my gosh... Darfur is no further away from us now than, than Western Ireland was from London in 1847, and we're sitting here listening and watching to exactly the same things happen. I mean, the displaced children now may carry automatic weapons to the refugee camps, but they're still just displaced, lost, orphaned 
kids on the run from a kind of society that's absolutely falling apart. And that's what was happening in Western Ireland in the mid-1840s. I mean, a society, it was the end of a certain Ireland. You know, Ireland was a rich, not a rich, but Ireland was a large European country in 1845. It had a population of 8 million people at a time when France had 12 and England had, I think, 14. Ireland was a large European country. Ireland is still not at that population, and Ireland has only in the last 15 years had a booming economy. And every aspect of contemporary Irish life is one way or another shaped by the famine. Every aspect. I mean, when I was in Ireland in 92, I was working on a story about the troubles that wasn't really going anywhere, and I was getting a little tired of listening to Jerry Adams on the radio. I woke up in my hotel room in Dublin one morning, a little clock radio, with news of a famine in Ethiopia that had probably been going on for months, but the way those things just kind of break before the Western world, suddenly some reporter gets in there and suddenly it's all over the airwaves. I heard that news in the morning in Dublin. That afternoon in Dublin, on every street corner, there was a kid with a can collecting money for the famine victims in Ethiopia. Oh, two weeks later, the president of Ireland at the time, Mary Robinson, flew to New York to address the United Nations on behalf of the famine victims. I saw that famine was, to the Irish, still a live wire. I mean, it was just a, there viscerally. And that reawakened my sense of, you know, of its power and the oddness that, you know, the Irish are a, a literary and talkative people, but there's not much of a... There's been a great historiography of the famine in the last 20 years, but there even wasn't much written about the famine as, as, as history uh, until really the 1980s. I mean, there were certainly some great books. And in terms of novels... You know, there's Liam Flaherty's book in 1938, which is called Famine, which is, you know, a powerful, you know, strange and powerful book, but there's not any kind of depth of famine literature in English. Yeah, you don't find it in Joyce or Beckett? Or well, you find it underneath. You find it underneath in Beckett. You know, it's there. It's informing Beckett. In reading your book, The Law of Dreams, and I'm speaking with Peter Behrens, this young man has been close to death and has seen death all around him. Mm-hmm. And hunger and strife are with him throughout his life. And you talk about the law of dreams being that you simply have to keep moving. Beckett has the same sort of you go, go on, on. Go on. You, you just go, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, that's sort of how I felt with this character. It's God, he had put up with so much. Mm-hmm. And he just kept going on. Yeah, he was determined to stay alive. He, he saw his life as a gift that had been given to him, and he, he felt really at the code of his, at the bottom of his code of ethics, is this kind of moral responsibility to kind of stay alive and see what happens, and to, to not give up this precious gift. For the first part of the book, I always thought of him as wondering whether he was in fact alive or dead yet, whether he didn't die in that cabin, and part of his interest in sensuality and in his, his, his extreme openness to the you know, sense and savors of the natural world and the thing about Keith Looney is really he's trying to prove to himself that he's still alive, that this isn't a dream that he's not really dead and he's not all dreaming this but that he's, he's still in amongst the living. It sounds very grim but no, he has some fun too he does, but it's interesting. He hooks up with this uh, a band of uh, outlaws, young uh, boys, uh, one thinks. Boys and girls. It's led by a girl named Luke, and they do have sex. But it's funny. Uh, now, maybe it's because they were almost starving to death, but I didn't find that he was terribly excited by the whole thing. Hmm. Hmm. Uh-huh. That's interesting. 
I think he did have a kind of profound, passionate relationship with her. It was certainly constrained by the circumstances. He ultimately, you know, was passionate and loyal to her. You know, she wasn't exactly the leader you'd want to follow. I mean, she had, she was, they were all kind of lost children. Yeah, a bit like uh, Lord of the... I remember seeing the cover of a Newsweek magazine, and this is, I think, maybe eight years ago, when there was some dreadful, you know, social, civil meltdown happening in Sierra Leone, I think it was. There was a picture of a 12-year-old in camo fatigues walking down the main street of this diverted, deserted sort of village with an AK-47 over his shoulder. I thought, you know, that's what happens when a society breaks down. And that's who the bog boys are. I mean, they say they don't have AK-47s, but they are the, the children from whom, I mean, the social net has been completely dissolved. You know, they have no place. Many of them were, were kids even before the famine were sold into a kind of slavery to farmers to work as, as cowherds or, or dairy girls. But they revolted and they actually killed the farmer. That, yeah, not the, the people they worked with. They've just been cut loose. Most of the people they worked for or with are people who've up stakes and left Ireland and not bothered taking them along. They're just lost kids. Mm. You know, they're, they're, some of them are nine years old and some of them are 12 and some of them are 15. They're just the same kids who are the refugees and the most, you know, in despair, despairing straits in places like you know, Darfur or, or Sierra Leone. Or when we go to Ireland now, we see as empty and gorgeous and desolate. They are desolate. I mean, they're loaded with ghosts. They are gorgeous. And they are empty. They sure weren't in 1845. They were packed with people living on these marginal, hilly lands, surviving on potatoes. And when the potatoes went down, they went down too, and their culture went down. Reminds me of Samuel Johnson talking about how you judge a civilization by the way that it takes care of its have-nots. Yeah, and, uh, well, judged by those standards, I guess none of us are, are, are that wonderful. And you de- depend on, I guess, the... The, the key there is who does the possessive refer to? Who are our have-nots? Are the people in Darfur ours? Well, I think these days, yes. Yeah, and were the people in Western Ireland? I mean, often when I'm reading in an Irish bar in New York, I finish my reading and I get a question, and it's often in a, in a voice from the north of Ireland, from, from down around Trump. I finish reading, and there's a beat of a second, and somebody says, did the British cause a famine? My short answer in such circumstances is usually yes. You know, the British government can certainly be accused and probably convicted of almost criminal negligence. But, I mean, also hindsight is very easy to apply. The, the famine now looks like a, a monstrous, historically unique event that should have been responded to. But as it was unfolding, I don't think people had that clear picture of it. The, the, the abilities they had to deal with it were, were constrained anyhow. I do think, though, that the fundamental fact of the situation is Ireland was a captive nation. It had a government and decision makers who did not exactly have the interests of the people of Ireland, let alone the Catholic peasantry of Munster and Connacht, nearest and dearest to their hearts. Had this been happening in Cornwall and Devon and Dorset, I think it would have been a much more effective and less coldly heartless response. Because you know, and there there are some individuals within the British government who were very concerned and attempted to you know do what they could. Reading the literature of the time and the letters of the time, there's an element which is saying, or not really saying, but feeling that, you know, those congested districts overpopulated with wild Irishmen, Irish-speaking, uncivilized, they were a problem. They didn't seem to be fitting into the modern world. That's poisoned, you know, British-Irish relations for, you know, 160 years. 
But it wasn't as if they were taking care of their own either. I mean, they were exploiting their own children in England, and it wasn't that, exactly. that, you know, that these social laws were just starting to come in and take effect. But I do think that the great landlords and nobles of England and, and the powers in the government would not have been able to politically, psychologically, morally say, oh, well, we're going to lose two million people in the West Country this year, but, you know... So what, a good thing, yeah. I don't think uh, that could have stood. Mm. Ireland was the other. I mean, the Irish were the other then. They were in a North American, in a North American context. You know, they were the first people really who came here who, who, who were thought of as uh, as immigrants rather than settlers. And all the things that we put on later generations of immigrants. Immigrants meaning that uh, there's less of a, a desire to settle, that there was a more of a desire to get away from something than to, to go and build something? My sense of it is, is that, and this is a little different in Canada than the United States. I think in Canada, the Irish really came at a time in the 1840s when there was still lots of room to roam. The society outside Quebec was pretty much largely unformed. It was still in its pioneering stages. And the Irish could come in as a founding people which they really did, I think, in southern Ontario. But when they say arrived in Boston, Philadelphia, or New York, they came into a society that was already planted for 200 years, rigid hierarchies, based, founded on principles of anti-Catholicism. There wasn't really much room for them in those places. They got stuck in urban ghettos in, in, in the big cities of the East. I mean, that's not the whole story, but it's a large part of it. And it's one of the reasons why the Irish-American identity is quite different than the sense of Irish Canadian, the state that I grew up with in Montreal. Let's get back to the novel. Sorry. Fergus, young Fergus then, he jumps on uh, a boat and goes over to Liverpool where he uh, becomes a pearl boy. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could tell us what a pearl boy is. Male prostitute. And pearl, would that refer to sperm, do you think? Uh, I don't know. and you know, I'm not entirely sure that I didn't I can't even remember anymore. I may have read that in another language and translated it. I may have made it up. I can't say quite where that came from. I no longer remember in the stew of, of research, invention, and, you know, borrowing. <laughs> I do remember having a very vivid sense. Hawthorne, of all people, wrote this, this novel called Redburn, which is part of which is set in, in Liverpool in the 1840s, and seems to be about the world of male prostitutes couldn't exactly write about it as that, but it seems to be sort of what's going on below the text. Fergus does not actually become a pearl boy. He, he considers the career and, uh, and finally um, you know, resists and doesn't. Heads off to do something else. Perhaps you could pick up the story from there for, the, for our listeners. He realizes finally that he can't be a pearl boy because it feels like he's, he would be leaving himself too vulnerable. He acknowledges that the girls who've been taking care of them are the sales prostitutes and they're doing what they have to do and he's nothing special. But he simply, it just feels too vulnerable to him. It feels like he would be giving up some core of himself to become a prostitute. So he'd rather. And people die. are saying, people, no, people are saying to him, you know, you work as a navvy, a laborer on a railway. They're just using your yeah. body too. What's the difference? And they have a point. <laughs> but somehow, instinctively, he just feels that he would be too vulnerable, giving up that part of himself. His, you know, it's something he's managed to hold on to is his interior life, his sensuality, a sense of intimacy. He doesn't have much, and he's not willing finally to give that up. But it's not in any sense a moral judgment on you know these other pearl boys or other prostitutes, he just sees them like him as 
children who are doing what they need to do to survive. You know, some of them are being ill-treated, some of them are being well-treated. The woman who runs, I guess you call it a bordello, you know, is very generous to him and is very kind, and it's kind of a warm zone in his life. The time he spends there, the only people who really take care of him in the early stages are are the prostitutes, male and female, whom he meets. Yeah, there was an interesting scene where she bathes him and yeah. then masturbates him. Yeah. And again, I expected him to be a bit more fired up and excited about that. Well, he's a traumatized guy. I mean... Again, you know, if you're starving and... Uh, Everything's pretty elemental for him. He's like a weary little animal some of the time, I think. But, I mean, he also responds strongly to sensuality. I mean, he's, he's very drawn to that world of tenderness and, and sensuality and intimacy. And he doesn't quite know how to handle it. But it appeals to him. He's always looking for a kind of intimacy in his relations. And very often in the world he's in, sensuality and sexuality is simply just a commodity or a quick sort of shorthand form of communicating. He's living, you know, amongst people who are Victorians, but their attitudes to things like this are completely not what we would think of as Victorian attitudes. These are the, you know, disenfranchised, poor, kid prostitutes... Well, speaking of Johnson, there was a statistic that I read recently of that a huge percentage of the women of that day were prostitutes. Most of the young women he meets in the circles in which he moves are. They don't, you know, that's it. I mean, there's no choice. That's all they have to sell. They do what they have to do. So he goes to Canada. What happens there? He goes to Liverpool. From Liverpool, he actually, he, when he leaves Shay's Dragon, which is the name of the bordello, they're the people who nurse him back from his famine experiences. When he leaves there, he goes to Wales, to North Wales, and he works as a railway navvy, building the, uh, the railway line from Chester to Holyhead, which is actually the line to Ireland. Mm. That's, uh, where the, yeah, that's where the boat arrives. Yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. And the railway, you know, is the kind of high-tech of the day. It's very dramatic and lots of status involved, even in being a railway navvy. They're very well paid. They're like guys who work in the Fort McMurray now. It's sort of that sort of deal, you know? He goes in there, he lives in this really rough camp where the men live, and he works as a, a horse boy or a tip boy on, on the railway construction, hoping to save money and, and do something. He meets in the camp a young woman by the name of Molly. She's called a railway wife. She's basically shacked up with one of the foremen, which allows her to live in, in, in the cabins. She makes a little money by taking care of the other men doing their laundry and, and making their food. She's treated quite brutally by the foreman whose property she is. She ends up leaving, fleeing that camp with Fergus. He's promised to take her to America. You know, she's a challenging, uh, you know, I hope appealing, intriguing, forceful, willful young woman. She's not entirely sure. She's just looking for a ticket out. She needs to get away from there. She, she doesn't believe in things like love or anything like that. She just sees this guy in some way. She's drawn to him and to his innocence, but she's also this kind of little wounded creature herself, and she just needs a guy to get her out of there. And they get out of there, and they form a partnership. They have different needs, I think, there. They get on a ship. Thousands and thousands of thousands of people were doing that. Some are the cheapest crossings on the Atlantic three for the pounds, poorest Irish, three pounds ahead in the hold of a lumber boat going to Canada. These are boats that came over with lumber from Quebec and from New Brunswick over Maine and then loaded their cargoes in English or Irish ports and were looking for a paying cargo on the way back. There wasn't much else going to Canada 
from the UK or from Ireland that could fill the holds with immigrants at three pounds a head, just jam them in there in spaces that you or I would find impossible to survive at 12 people and they would pack in 200. You know, and these are often people who, you know, these are peasants from the west of Ireland. They don't speak English. They've just arrived in Liverpool. They're utterly lost. Liverpool's the modern great Atlantic city of the uh, of the age. You know, it's that it's a place you or I would recognize as a city. They're lost sheep there. They're herded on these boats. They're not entirely sure whether it was four or forty days across to America. This isn't like the immigrant experience at the turn of the century, where people are coming through Ellis Island. You know, and an experience that looks kind of rough, but also sort of modern. This is really like a vast version of the Haitian boat people arriving in South Florida in the 1980s. These are poor peasants from a foreign culture jumping onto anything that'll float, not really even knowing where they are going because America is not really established for the Catholic Irish yet as a, as a, as a destiny. So much so you think of sl- a slavery. Yeah, you know. they are. I mean, they're, they're passing, the slaves belong to people and were property, and so there was some economic reason to keep them alive. I mean, believe me, the three pounds a head had already been paid. The ship's masters, some of them were decent you know, human beings, and some of them weren't. I mean, it didn't really matter to them whether they got these people there alive or shipped them into the St. Lawrence or into the Western Ocean on the way over. The crossing is intriguing, I think, and uh, has its brutal aspect. They get to Montreal, and I really don't want to give away the ending of the book, but they do come into Montreal. Fergus comes up St. Paul Street and to a hotel, I think. There's a, he ends up partly at Roscoe's Hotel and Notre Dame Street. Not the ending, but getting towards the ending. I mean, Montreal, you know, in the 19th century was an Irish city. I mean, the, the, the majority, not just in certain decades in the 70s and 80s, were Irish in Montreal. And I, I don't want that aspect of our history to be in any way kind of forgotten. When you look at the flag of the city of Montreal, there's a shamrock on the corner. There's a reason for that. And as I said, there's large elements of Quebecois culture which are heavily influenced by the massive Irish immigration here in the, in the 19th century. I'd like to return to the uh, the poetry along with the, yep. uh, the, the the squalor, if we could, mm-hmm. uh, just to, to wind up. There is a lot of poetry in this uh, work, I find. It, it is uh, sparse. There's a, there's a couple of strands here. One is when reading a novel, the great novels, you don't even know that you're reading a language. It's just almost intravenous. It's, mm-hmm. it's just there, and you're turning pages to get to the next piece of the puzzle. There's that, and then there's the writing that sort of attracts attention to itself. There's some of that going on. Oh, dear. Other parts of it uh, are invisible, and this is my, was my take mm-hmm. anyway. I mm-hmm. found that the poetry was a little bit too poetic mm. at times, mm. but this won a major Canadian award, so, so obviously it hit a chord with mm-hmm. people, the way mm-hmm. that you hit the right balance. I wonder if... Completely wanted to stay away from poetry and any kind of writing that called attention to itself. I mean, as I said, the book needed to have a language, and I was hoping to write it in a language, but um, I'm with you on that. I don't like a book that gets in its own way, and I don't want to, I don't like fancy writing. I yeah, don't like I guess I'm not, ruffles I'm not, and flourishes. Yeah, so. I'm not saying that, though. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, it had to be a supreme masterpiece, I think, mm-hmm. to get the two together mm-hmm. so that they are seamless. There mm-hmm. is this poetry where you can just stop and read a sentence and just think it's magnificent the way mm-hmm. it captures a thought and the way that it's the way that it's phrased, mm-hmm. melded in with the story. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. you know Tolstoy or or mm-hmm. Madame Flaubert, yep. where some of these lines are they stand alone and they're beautiful, but they don't 
call attention to themselves. Mm -hmm. What were you trying to do with this? Because there is there are these two strands here. Yeah, I, there's. A, I think what you're referring to, I think, is there is an element you see it when I set myself the task of telling this tale entirely from one character's point of view. I wanted to not just be able to see what he is seeing, but also sometimes to to feel what he is feeling. And I had to get right inside his head. And I decided what I would do was that I would have access myself to what I call his brain talk. And every now and then, I would just deliver to the reader kind of unadulterated what his thinking is. And I'm, I don't particularly explain it. It's just there sometimes. And it comes across, I think, times those aphorisms. Yeah. You know, or just very stark, pure thoughts. As I say, I think of that as brain talk. He thinks of it as his brain talk. It's the I inside the me inside his head. Is that what you're referring to? Because that's a, a strand that I decided I needed to have because I wanted to get close and I wanted the reader to be close and have the to, to not only see what this character is seeing but to know kind of who they are and where they are, where they're standing from when they, when they see this stuff. I want to be inside him closely. I would say that, yeah. I would say that the that is the, po the poetic part of mm -hmm. this work is mm -hmm. that it's, it's kind of clipped, it's sparse, but it is memorable too. As mm -hmm. I say, it, it, bringing, it brings attention to itself, mm -hmm. but his experience, particularly the, the starkness of the death of his siblings and his parents and just this living in the rough, you know, yeah. is very powerful and it's staying with me. But the language itself, I thought, drew attention to itself mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. those instances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. What can I say? I mean, I think... Hope it works. Hope it works. Um, it's funny how you know that. I sometimes would be stuck with Fergus for like six months. I couldn't, you know, I'd be away from the boy. I couldn't deal with it. And whenever I go back to it, uh, the voice of that book, which is not the voice I'm normally writing in, you know, it's just specific to that book. I was always accessible to me that way, and uh, I felt obviously. I mean, I live with this guy. I, I I live with this book longer than the famine took to happen. You know. <laughs> It was, was it 1996? To, to uh, sort of. I mean, I began at the McDowell Colony when I was there in 96. So it really, from start to finish, was 10 years. I mean, I wasn't working on it all the time. And at the end there, there was, you know, a year before, after it was really finished, before it was published. But it really occupied me largely for about seven years. I mean, the research and the writing of it, it really did. It took over my life. I mean, I ended up, you know, changing my life and I needed to live very simply and cheaply. I moved back to Maine and lived very quietly because I was determined to get the book done without sort of showing it to anyone, and just to see if I could do it. You know? And, uh, did you sh did you show it to uh, editors, or this was it? This is your f your piece. No yeah, one's going to no change one, it. Yeah. There were at the end. My agent, my fantastic agent Sarah Burns, gave it a very useful read and had some some good notes. Um, I had a couple of friends read it who gave me some good notes on it, some good notes from the publisher, and I listened to that, and I, I got some useful help. But, you know, no, the book was not heavily edited by anyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's itself. Yes. I don't want to deny the help that other people, you know, certainly gave me in some ways, and, you know, some people would say, you know, when, I'd, when two or three things would come up constantly, I'd realize I had a problem and I'd work on it. But, no, the book had its own shape. I felt like sometimes I was like an insane hermit. I mean, there I was living in this working in this barn in Maine with these pages piling up about, like, who really cares about the Irish famine? You know, and in a manuscript, it was, like, a pretty big chunk. 
I kind of felt, and this sounds corny, but I kind of felt like I was on this, you know, journey with with my guy here, and we were gonna, <laughs> you know, one way or another, we were gonna see it through together, you know. So it found it felt nice to arrive on the on the foreign shore finally. Well, and you have arrived. I mean, by winning the governor general's award. Oh, that was that was really fun. It's really. Uh, I honestly will tell you that that never for a second crossed my mind that um, you know my book would even be considered. I mean, I'm not. I'm a Canadian. I'm not well known, certainly in Canada. I, I, in fact, I got a little tired this fall about hearing how unknown I was, and I was thinking, you know, most I'm usually around people who know me, so I don't feel that unknown. But I guess I am, you know, certainly in the Canadian literary world. And so that was a real thrill. Also, it's just very gratifying to get that kind of acknowledgement from your home. I'm a Canadian inescapably. It doesn't matter where I live. You know, I was born and brought up here. My family's Canadian. For better or for worse, that's who I am. Just finally, uh, I don't want to paint this as being doom and gloom, but, mm-hmm. but uh, death and poverty, uh, how closely have those touched your life? Minimally, certainly compared to my characters. I mean, I'm a you know, middle-class Canadian, right? What do I know about death and poverty? I know something. I mean, you can't live long enough in this world without you know, dealing with grief and loss. It's the nature of the lease on uh, this planet, right? It's the human experience. I've certainly never gone through anything remotely resembling the horrors that my character's been through. You know, I've seen my share of death and loss, I suppose. I've certainly never been hungry. I've certainly never been alone. But uh, partly what I was writing about was a book about grief and how you deal or don't deal with loss. Or you keep moving. Yeah, and I've I've had, I don't know if I've had my share. Irish enough to have to touch wood when I talk about anything like this. (laughs) I'm, I'm 52, so I've been around a time or two, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for being around for this interview. It's been a pleasure I'm talking with and have been talking with Peter Behrens, who's the author of The Law of Dreams, winner of the 2006 Governor General's Literary Award. Thank you very much, Nigel.